My favorite story. Yes, I wanted to share my testimony message with you today so that maybe you know a little bit more about the person who stands before you. Uh, let's begin in the month of May in 1979. My wife and I were students at New Orleans Seminary. I had been to a, 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 uh, a chapel service, and in that chapel service there was an invitation and in, uh, given an opportunity to go to a different place in the in this nation somewhere and uh, spend a summer planting new churches, hopefully. And so I really felt a tug toward that. My wife was a legal secretary downtown in New Orleans, and uh, I didn't know how she might feel about that. But that afternoon when she got off from work, we were talking, and I said, I said, you know, I really uh, felt a tug toward that. How do you feel about that? She said, let's go. So uh, to make a long story short, she resigned her uh, position downtown. And uh, we went through all the process. And uh, we started across country driving our old Ford station wagon to go to Los Angeles County, California and do church planting on the Palos Verdes Peninsula. It's an interesting place. The uh, cheap houses... Back in those days, 1979, started about $150,000 and went up to a million. It's a different kind of place. But it's an interesting place to serve, trying to start a church in that community. On our trip across country, there was a couple that were friends of ours from New Orleans Seminary, and they were going to Orange County, California, and, and do some of the same work for the summer, helping start a church there. And so uh, they did. They had a two-year-old son named Aaron. And Aaron would ride with his parents for a little bit, and then he'd ride with us. And if you've ever driven across country, sometimes that, it can be long days. So we were driving across, and, and we got out into the uh, western part of the nation in Arizona, New Mexico. If you've driven through that part of the world in the southern Arizona, you know there's some desert area out there, and it's pretty bland. It's fairly blank out there. So we're driving along, and, and a two-year-old, it's tough to ride all day long in a car. So part of the time he would ride with his parents, part of the time he would ride with us. And this particular afternoon, after lunch, he wanted to ride with Mr. Dolo. He couldn't say Doyle, two years old. So I became Mr. Dolo. We were riding along, and, and it was hot, desert afternoon, and uh, Aaron wanted to ride with us, so he got in the car. He's riding with us, and uh, Susan was tired. She wanted to sleep. I knew that Aaron was going to be bouncing around all over the car. This was before seatbelt time had to be. So he's bouncing around, and, and I thought, well, I'll tell Aaron a story, and maybe it'll put him to sleep. Susan will get to sleep, and I'll just drive. I didn't know any stories. We didn't have any children at that time. I didn't know very many children's stories. So I thought, well, I'll tell the story of the three little pigs. So I started with a little pig with the, with the straw house, and, and uh, the wolf came along, and he huffed and puffed and blew that house down, and the little pig ran over to the pig with the stick house, and the wolf huffed and puffed and blew that house down, and then those little pigs ran over to their brother that had the brick house, and the wolf came and he huffed and puffed and Susan is sound asleep. She's gone. 
Aaron is wide awake. Head in Susan's lap, feet in my lap. He's wide awake. So I thought, well, you know, this story's about to end. And when it ends, he's going to bounce up and wake Susan up. And she's not going to be happy about that. And so maybe I better add something to this story. And so I, I did begin to add something to that story. That wolf huffed and puffed at the, at the brick house, couldn't do anything with it. He tunneled underneath the house and tried to come up through the floor that was reinforced and he couldn't get through there. And he went up and tried to go down through the chimney and the fire wouldn't let him do that. And, and so he went off and he, and he got some tools and came and started trying to take the windows out. And, and this went on and on and on. And, and after about an hour, I had finally sent that wolf off to learn how to fly airplanes. And he came back and threw bombs at that house, but it was too well built. And then he went off to college and got a degree in psychology. And that wolf came back and talked those little pigs out of the house. And they all went to McDonald's and had a hamburger together. It took about an hour and a half, two hours to tell that story. The rest of that trip, every time I would see Aaron, he'd say, Mr. Dolo, tell me about when the wolf went to college. And I'd say, Aaron, as best I could, I could never tell that story again. I guess it became Aaron's favorite story for that summer. But then I want to tell you my favorite story today. My favorite story is a biblical story. It's recorded throughout the scripture. And I want to begin with a prophetic word from the Old Testament that's found in the little book of Micah. In Micah chapter 5 verse 2 he says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. There are a lot of other prophetic words in the Old Testament that tell about the coming of the Messiah. The suffering servant of Isaiah. Tremendous, tremendous uh, account there in the book of Isaiah. Other places in the book of Psalms and, and places where God talks about this coming Messiah. The branch, the root of Jesse. So much in Old Testament. But taking this particular thought, we get to the New Testament, and you know the story that's recorded by Matthew in chapter 2, where it's about the time of the birth of Jesus, and the Magi are coming from the east. They had seen the star, and they were coming there to worship this one. They didn't know who he was exactly, but they knew something powerful was going on. And so they came into Jerusalem. They met there with the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and some of the others. And, and they inquired, where is this one going to be born? And so they began to tell him. And, and Herod, of course, heard about that. And he said, uh, go find this young baby and, and bring word back to me so that I may go and worship him too. We know that that's not the truth because later on, Herod finally had all the children, two years of age and younger, put to death. He did not want to worship that new king. He wanted to destroy that king. But Isaiah records it like this. The priest said to these magi, they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. A direct line back to Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But in these couple of verses, they actually, Matthew paraphrases about three or four verses out of Micah chapter 5. 
But that background, the Old Testament prophetic word, the New Testament fulfillment of a coming Messiah, the anointed one of God, brings me kind of to the essence of my favorite story. And that has to do with the supernatural birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, we read this. Now, when the birth of Jesus Christ was followed, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Mary had never known a man, but she was found to be with child because God had said, you are the one that I have chosen through whom my Messiah, my Savior, my anointed one is going to come into the world and be the Savior from sin for all people. And so here is a virgin girl who is now found to be with child. That's not something you can put in a test tube. That's not something you can write in an equation on a chalkboard and put an equal sign and figure it out. That's a God thing because that's God's Word. That's what He's done. But we read on, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God has said, Mary, you're going to be the one that that brings my Messiah into the world. And he's going to be the anointed one. We're going to know him as the Son of God. But guess who he is? He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. God is Father. God is Son. God is Holy Spirit. The Trinity, the triune God that loves us, created us, came to be among us so that we could be saved. And he said, that's who this is going to be. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Supernatural birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, anointed to be our Savior, our Lord. That's not something you can give some scientific explanation for. That's a God thing. That's God's word. That's God's will. That's God's way. But not only his supernatural birth, but we continue on this study of our Messiah in our Lord in the New Testament. We come to the book of Mark and we discover something about his supernatural miracles. You see, it's God, God who could create, God who could separate the Red Sea and let the children of Israel pass over on dusty, dry ground. God who could come back and and destroy an entire army of the enemies of the people of God. What can he do? What can he do for us? We were told this morning to pray for some people who need special prayer, and we will do that. 
That's what needs to be done. But what, what can he do? In Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, we read this. And it says, Jesus seeing their faith. You know the story. These friends had a man who was sick, a paralytic. And uh, they, they loved this friend. They knew Jesus was in town and they'd heard about things that he could do. And so they thought, let's bring our friend to Jesus. They got there and there was so many people around the house, people they couldn't get in. And so they went up on the roof, they tore that roof off and they let their friend down in front of Jesus there. I've often wondered what would it have been like to have been in that room? Where's that dust coming from? And then in in a few minutes, here comes this man down through the ceiling on a pallet. And there they are. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, wait a minute. That's not what we brought him here for. We brought him here so he could get up off that pallet and walk. We want to see him healed. Your sins are forgiven you. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Didn't say they were talking about it out loud where we could hear. They were thinking and why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Great question. Great question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? No one can. Jesus is setting the stage for something he's about to teach them and all of us by extension that we need to know. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Great question. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, no conversation taken on yet, but Jesus knows what's going on. And he said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? Good challenge. Which is easiest? They were caught between the proverbial rock and hard place. If we say, well, it's easy to say, get up and walk, and the man does it, he might be able to forgive sins too. We've already said he's a blasphemer, forgiving sins. So which is easiest to do? If he can do one, he can do the other. If he can forgive sins, he can certainly get someone up to walk. We're kind of caught here. Verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. I guess not. We've never seen this. The supernatural birth, the God thing. And then he came here and he said, I want to do all these things in front of you so that you may know one thing, that I am the Messiah, I am the anointed one, I am God with you, I can forgive sins, and of all the things that you may need, of all the miracles you may need in your life, that is the greatest need of every human on earth, forgiveness of sins. There will come a time in our life when nothing else will matter except that we have come face to face with the realization that we're sinners and God loves us and he came to die for us so that we might have eternal life and trust in him as our savior. There comes a time when you need forgiveness of sin in your life. That is the greatest need of every human being. And he says, so that you may know that I have power to forgive sins, I'll do these things. 
It's not an illustration that you can put on the chalkboard and put an equation out there and say, that's it. I can figure it out. Not something you can put in a test tube in a science lab and figure it out. That's a God thing. And he's called us to trust him in that. But then not only the supernatural birth and miracles, but the substitutionary death of our Lord. Why? You probably know this outline well in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, sin is the problem. It always has been the problem since Adam and Eve and you and I can't blame them. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we know in Romans 6, 20, uh, 26, he says, for the wages of sin is death. And we know what wages are. We get paid for what we do. And he said, what you've done is sin against God. And if you continue in that, then it's death, not only physical death, but eternal death. The book of Revelation talks about the second death and the death and hell were cast into the lake of fire forever and forever and forever. That is the wages of sin. We've all sinned. Sin cost us. And I love that little three-letter word there in uh, Romans 6.26. But, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have this sin problem that needs to be dealt with and God has come to deal with that through Jesus Christ. And in, my, in Romans 5, 8, he says, God demonstrated his love. He showed us his love. He said, you want to see love? Here's what it is. People say you can't see love. It's a feeling. It's an emotion. It's something that's inside of you that it's, it's there or it's not there. He said, you want to see love? Let me show you love. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The substitutionary death for my sin, for your sin, so that he can forgive us of sin and cleanse us and give us life. But if the story ended there, then we have a dead man in a tomb somewhere in the Middle East. But the story doesn't end there. Look at a little farther into the account written by Peter in his first letter. And I have it for you there. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The just for the unjust, the one who had no sin, for all of us who have the sin, he died that we might have life. Made alive in the spirit. That brings us to the rest of the story, and that's the supernatural resurrection in Matthew chapter 28. And you know the story well as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. The ladies came out to the tomb where they had buried Jesus after they had taken him off the cross. And uh, they came there to anoint his body. When they got there, he was gone. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who's been crucified, but he is not here, for he has risen, just as he said, Come, see the place where he was lying, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And we've been reporting that story, that event, ever since. And we need never quit repeating that story. The supernaturally born 
virgin-born Son of God, who is God with us, and came to live among us and show us who He was by what He did so that He might bring us to an understanding that we need Him for forgiveness of sin because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And He died the payment for our sin. The wages of sin is death. He died that for us, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to Himself. And the way He did that was through rising again, taking his life back in resurrection power so that we could have eternal life. That story is my favorite story, and I love it. Now, I'm never going to quit telling that story as long as I have breath in my body. We've been reporting that without the resurrection of Jesus, no hope, no expectation of heaven. But with the resurrection of Christ, we have God's guarantee of eternal life if we'll trust in Him for forgiveness of sin and trust Him as our Savior. The resurrected Savior, He is our only Savior. In Romans 10, 13, it says, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I was pastor over in Swanee County many years ago. And a man in my church who was our Sunday school director, as a matter of fact, at the time, His brother lived there in the community and he had never placed his faith in Christ. And this man had witnessed to him. Others had witnessed to him. They cared about him. They loved him. You see, God, all those years, God was uh, planting the seed and watering and, and just letting it go. And he said, would you go with me? I said, sure, let's go. So we went out to his house and we started talking and he wasn't really interested initially. But we got to this passage and I took him through the Roman road you're familiar with. And we got to this passage and I said, look, you know what that says? Whoever. Whoever. Whomever. Makes no difference. It didn't say whoever will call on the name of the Lord if they have not and then you could list off whatever sin you want to put in there. Murder. Thievery. Lie. Cheating. Put anything in there. I said, it didn't say that, did he? He said, no, it didn't. And I said, that means that whatever has gone on in your life, if you will trust Christ as your Savior, He's able to forgive all sin, cleanse it out of your life, and if you'll trust Him, He will give you His salvation and His resurrection power will come into you and the Spirit of God take up residence in your life and you too will be a child of God. We had the privilege to see that man get on his knees by the coffee table in his living room and give his life to Christ. That's my favorite story. I like that. But I want to ask you to give me just a little personal privilege to share with you how this story relates to my life. And then I'll close with a brief biblical illustration. I grew up in a Christian family. Both of my grandfathers were Baptist preachers. I grew up under the shadow of the steeple, Brother Larry. I didn't know what people did on Wednesday night that were not in prayer meeting. That was just how we did things at our house. And I love that. Thank God for that that heritage. When I was about, I don't know, seven or eight or nine years old, I remember a lot of my friends were walking the aisle at church and coming down and we all thought, well, this is what we ought to do. So we came down and made our profession of faith and Christ and got, went through the waters of baptism. 
All that was done. A little town called Branford, Florida. Swanee County, not too far from here. Not too far from here. That was done. Went on through school and getting into high school and learned to tell all the off-color jokes that everybody else learned to tell. Graduated and went to college and didn't do too well for the first year and a half. Spent more time in the pool hall than I did study hall. I'm not proud of those things now. But that's what happened. That was the facts of the matter. Dropped out of college when my, my grades were not very good at that point. So I dropped out, and Vietnam was getting really hot in 1967. I graduated from high school in 65. Vietnam was getting really hot. The draft was high. And I thought, well, maybe I should go and try something else. So I talked to a Navy recruiter, and the Navy recruiter said, you got just enough college that we'll guarantee you an aircraft school if you'll join the Navy. And so I joined under those circumstances, thinking that when I got out of the Navy, maybe I could uh, become an aircraft mechanic. I tell my wife she didn't marry a preacher. She married an aircraft mechanic. God did that later on. So I went in the Navy and and got in the Navy and everything you've ever heard about sailors is true and some of it's worse. Not proud of a lot of things that went on in my life in those days. On liberty and other countries and leaving the base at Jacksonville, Cecil Field and some of the things that went on there. I won't detail those things because there's nothing to detail. It's not good. Susan and I had started dating and and I was a real good hypocrite. I knew where to turn that dial on, Miss Susie, and where to turn it off. I could go to church on Sunday and sing in the choir and I did. Got into a little singing group and we'd go around and sing at churches and and between the church and home I'd be back involved in, in stuff that I don't want to talk about. But when I was around Susan, and I knew she was a, a good Christian girl, I knew how to be nice. Last cruise came up in the Navy, and, and we were about to go to the Med on USS Forrestal. That's it. I gave her an engagement ring. Didn't want anybody messing with it while I was gone. Now that goes, Frank. And so we were, I was gone for 177 days on that cruise. Got on that ship and, and in our shop, there were a group of men there who were real men of God. With all the Playboy pinups and whatever else on the, on the walls on that ship and everything, like I say, you've heard about sailors is true. Some of it's worse. In the midst of that kind of atmosphere, there were a group of men there who loved Jesus and they just loved the Lord. And they, they would talk about Jesus right in the midst of all that and everybody else doing whatever else there was. But they would talk about it. And one day, one of those guys invited me and they said, look, we go up to the ship's chapel at night and we open the word of God and we read and we pray and we sing and all that. Would you like to come with us? Oh, man, they had seen my life. They had seen what I was off of the ship on Liberty. They had seen what I was in that, in that shop. But I remember being in church all my life. 
And so I said, sure, man, I like to do that kind of thing. So I started going up to the chapel with him at night with a little black Pentecostal preacher named Seaborn. What a name for a sailor. Seaborn. First class petty officer, but he was a preacher. And he would lead the group. We had Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Pentecostals, all kind of folks there. And we'd read the Bible and a boy from West Virginia would get out his guitar, Brother Larry, and play and sing. We'd read and then we'd have prayer together. While I'm going in this, still being something else, those men in that shop never put me down for it. They just kept on loving me, kept on inviting me. I kept going up. One night, I remember it well. I was there in the, in the chapel. We'd had a service and we'd sung and we'd read the Bible and had prayer and everybody was leaving, but God kept me there that night. I remember getting down on my knees in the front row of the ship's chapel there on the forestall and saying, Lord, I'm just not where I ought to be. And, and so I'm talking with the Lord and I'm just, my spirit is not settled within me. There was a struggle going on. I realized what it was. It was a spiritual battle that was going on in my life at that time because I was one thing over here and something else over there and I was not what I ought to be in the Lord and I was beginning to understand that and I was praying and I was praying and there was no satisfaction in me and finally I got down on my face in the carpet of the chapel on the USS Forrestal. Spread out my face down and I said, God, I've heard about you all my life. But I don't know you. But tonight, nothing else matters. If I never go home and see my fiance again, if I never go home and eat another one of mama's home-cooked biscuits, it's all right. Nothing else matters except that I know you tonight. My friend Woody Townsend from Baltimore, Maryland, had, had left. He had gone back and, and to the our, our birthing apartment. He came back when I didn't show up. He came back. Joe Stepp. Daddy was a Baptist preacher in South Georgia. Worked on the galley deck. He came back and prayed for a little while. Woody and I stayed all night. The next morning, about 0600 hours, 6 a.m., we walked out of that chapel and went down for breakfast in the galley. There was a different man walked out of the chapel than the one had walked in the night before because God had showed up and he had gotten me to a place to where I had to understand that this is not a joke. It's real. And the God who created it and put it all together and gave us all this history of humankind and said, it's coming it's coming. And then the God who showed up at the birth of Jesus and lived among us and died for us and rose again for us and lives today is not a joke. It's a real thing. He is the Savior. He is Lord. And He had affected my life. And for the first time in my life, when someone took God's name in vain on the galley deck, where it didn't bother me before, for the first time in my life, it hurt me. Did everything change immediately in my conduct? No, not always. Doesn't do that immediately. My language needed to be cleaned up really bad. 
But for the first time, when that kind of stuff would come out, God would speak to my heart. And I'd say, Lord, that's not what I want to be. Would you help me with this? Would you help me with this? About a year or so later, I was working at a Western Auto repairing lawnmower engines. Wrench slipped, and I hit my fist on that engine block, and it hurt. And I had to stop and praise God for the first time in, well, a long time. I didn't even think anything off color. And I said, thank you, God. Victory is mine in the Lord because he makes the difference. Susan and I wrote each other every day, 177 letters. Almost 46 years later, we still have those letters. She sent my airline ticket. I was to get off of the plane on, or get off the ship July 2nd, 1971. Going to fly to Atlanta. She was going to meet me there. We were going to get her stuff and move some of it down to Branford where we were going to live and be with my folks for a few days. And then we're going back to Covington, Georgia, where she grew up, and we're going to get married. Two weeks after I got out, got off the airplane in Atlanta. We got in the car. She was driving me back to her folks' place in Covington. And I said, sweetheart, I'm not the same person I was when I left. And she said, I know it. And I said, how did you know? She said, your letters changed. I had no idea. Had no idea. But I look back on those days and say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for putting me on that ship with those men who loved the Lord and loved me. Was it my mom and dad's fault that I was not a child of God? No, it wasn't. I grew up on Home Life magazine. For any Southern Baptist, you know what that is. Read the little story, read the passage of Scripture, and have prayer every night. Every night. Dad was there. He would lead it. Dad worked shift work. If he wasn't there, Mom led it. They prayed for us. I remember seeing my mother with her hands folded and her head down on her hands on the table in our kitchen. Lips trembling as she prayed, I peeked. Lips trembling as she prayed for her children. I remember the time when she stood on the back porch with me and wept when I was throwing up drunk. But I also remember the time how proud she was when she was at New Orleans when we graduated from seminary. It wasn't my folks' fault that I wasn't a child of God. It was mine. It was mine. But thank God for a group of men who love somebody enough to invite them to a service and love him through and pray for him. And thank God for a night on the ship when I said, Lord, I've heard about you all my life, but I don't know you. But tonight, nothing else matters. And that's how that favorite story of mine affected my life. And it continues to the day. And it's going to continue on as long as the Lord gives breath. And I want to close with a brief biblical illustration found again in the book of Mark chapter 10 
Beginning in verse 17, we have it there. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and, and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He knows how to get right down to where we are and challenge our heart, doesn't he? You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Isn't that just like Jesus? Thank God he felt a love for me. Thank God he felt a love for you. Enough to die for us and and rise again to give us life. And then to speak to our hearts through the power of his spirit. To say, this is what you need. Felt a love for him and he said to him, one thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Sell all you possess. Now, do all of us have to sell everything we own in order to be saved? No. But God knows this and Jesus knew this. Anything that comes between us and God becomes our God. And if a God replaces the one who truly is God... And until we come to know who really is God, that God will lead us away from the Lord and we will spend eternity away from God forever. So he knew this young man was was engrossed in his wealth and his riches and, and his bank accounts and whatever else he might have had. And that was his life. He said, you got to get rid of all this stuff. Let nothing stand between you and me. When I put my face in the carpet that night, I said, God, nothing else matters. If I don't walk out of this this chapel again, you take my life here, it's okay. Nothing else matters. I want to know you. And God moved in and made a new man out of me. And that's what this this is all about. He's saying, there comes a point in your life when you've got to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, trust him, put your life in his hands and say, God, here it is. Nothing held back. It's yours. That's what it means to be saved. All the way. Here it is. Don't reach out to God with one hand. The world, hold on to the world with the other hand. Give it all up and say, Lord, here it is. He said, that's what you need to do. You need to give it all to me. And then one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Verse 22. But at these words he was saddened. And he went away grieving. For he was one who owned much property. As far as I know, this young man is never mentioned again anywhere. James A. Brooks in the New American Commentary says this verse has been called the saddest verse in the Bible. I would agree. But sadder still than that would be to know that there was someone here today who heard this message, heard that Jesus died to be the Savior from sins, rose again from the dead to give eternal life to any who would believe and walked out of this place today without trusting Jesus to be their personal Savior from sin. How's your story going to end? Is it going to end like this young man's? He went away grieving. 
went away. I, I, I just can't do it. I can't do it, Lord. I can't give myself to you. I can't turn my life over to you. Or we'll end by saying, Lord, there came a time when nothing else mattered. And I said, Jesus, here, take my life and make me yours. How will your story end today? I'm asking you to search your heart. And if you know that you know he's in there because you trusted him as your savior, thank God for that. But if not, why not now? You don't have to get down on your face in the floor. That's not necessary. It was for me because that's where God had me. But all that's necessary is to say, Lord, I believe, I trust you. Take my life and make me yours. And if that's the desire of your heart, you can bet that's the desire of his heart. That's why he came and died and rose again. That's why he lives today. Give us life. May we pray.